is the Savior of sinners. He's the only one who can save you from the penalty from your sins. Only Jesus can do that. It's Christ and Christ alone. And I want to tell you that because I want you to look to Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. I don't want you to look to baptism. I don't want you to look to church membership. I don't want you to look to good works. I don't want you to look to yourself and for you to think yourself saved because of how you are. I want you to look unto Jesus. Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It is Christ who saves. Brother Don Fortner, who's with the Lord now, he would say this, when I look at myself, I always feel condemned. But when I look unto Jesus, I feel saved because Jesus is the Savior. It's there in John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can that happen? And Jesus says, it's a spiritual thing. It happens to you. And then Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the Old Testament, that story about the serpent was connected to the people of Israel. They were, they were mad at God. They were mad at Moses, mad at God, mad at God's provision. They were upset. And so God sent serpents to, amongst the people, poisonous snakes to bite the people. And they were getting bitten by those snakes and they were dying. And Moses went to God and said, Oh Lord, be merciful to these people. And so God said, Make a brazen serpent. This is an interesting thing. God said, Do not make any images in the law. Don't make any pictures of anything. But then God says, make a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up in the midst of the camp. And you tell the people that if they will look to the brazen serpent, they'll be saved. And many of them did, but not all of them did. And you see this theme throughout the Old Testament of looking unto God, looking unto God as the source of salvation. Jesus is the only Savior. First of all, let's answer this question. What exactly is a Savior? What is a Savior? A Savior is a person who delivers another from harm and then secures them from danger the best they can. That's what a Savior is. Have you ever been looking for your keys at the house? You lost your car keys and you're looking all over for them and a little kid finds them. They go, oh, what a Savior. You've saved the day. You've, you've delivered us. Maybe you've been riding down the road and run out of gas in your car. And you're stuck on the side of the road. And if you're uh, in certain spots around here, you might not have any cell signal, so you can't call AAA or your wife. And somebody pulls over and stops, and you say, I'm out of gas. And if it's, uh, if it's a guy in an old beat-up Chevy truck or a Ford, he probably says, I got a can of gas in the back. <laughs> and he gets out the can of gas, and he says, you saved the day. You've saved me. And he helps you get out of that tight spot. We encounter saviors all the time. But there is a Savior who delivers once and for all, and that is Jesus. Another way to say that a person, to define the word Savior, is to say that a person, a Savior is a person who brings salvation to us. A salvation that we cannot attain or get for ourselves. In October 1942, there was an American man, his name was Edward Rickenbacker, he was an American entrepreneur, he owned Eastern Airlines at the time, and he was a Medal of Honor winner from World War I. He was a pilot, and he was making a tour of the, of the 
Army installations, air installations in the Pacific in 1942. He left Hawaii, headed in a roundabout way, going to see Douglas MacArthur. And he went from 1942, he went from Hawaii, flying south to the Phoenix Islands, to a little place, to an atoll called Canton. And he was very, he was happy to be on the plane. These are trained pilots, you know, navigators. But on the way, the navigator, who was kind of a new navigator, have you ever thought about trying to navigate your way in a plane without GPS and all the mathematical equations and things you have to think about and compass? And, and they lost their way. Finally, they, they said, okay, we, we've lost our way, so let's send out a signal, and we're going to box the compass and, and just fly two hours this way and this way and this way and try to find, see if we can get our bearings. Well, they flew for five and a half more hours when they realized they were lost, when somebody finally admitted it, and they ran out of gas. And they had to land that plane in the Pacific Ocean. They landed, the plane broke up a little bit. They got their stuff and and they got out of the ship. And they spent the next 24 days, the next 24 days in life rafts. Of course, these are not the life rafts we know today. These are the old-timey life rafts. Rickenbacker said the first thing he did when he was rescued from this trip was get to work on making better life rafts. (laughs) He realized that he was in a bad way. I'm just going to plug that for now. 24 days they spent adrift at sea, he and the crew from the ship. Over that 24 days, they lost about 30 to 40 pounds each because of dehydration and lack of food. One of the, one of the guys actually died. But on the 25th day, they heard a noise. A, a, a plane spotted them, a seaplane. And they were waving and doing their arms, and they had a flare gun, but they lost it in a storm. While they were out to sea, they tried everything possible to save themselves, but they couldn't do it. But then the plane flew over. He spotted them. It was a seaplane looking for them. Came around and landed on the ocean, took them. They they didn't have enough room to get everybody onto the airplane, so they put the, the weakest people inside the airplane. They tied Rickenbacker and the captain of the plane, tied them to the wing, and then went across the ocean like a little boat till they ran into a Navy ship that was heading that way. They were saved by the seaplane. They were brave men. These guys who were on this ship, Rickenbacker and crew, they were brave men. They were well-trained. They were very tough. But they did not have the power to save themselves. They tried. They paddled. They plotted. They rigged up stuff. But every effort that they tried to save themselves failed. Those seven men, they needed a savior. They needed someone who had access to power, an opportunity that they didn't have. They needed a deliverer. And my friends, so do you. You need a savior. That's the second thing. People in danger need a savior. And I want you to know that you're in danger. You are in danger. You say, from where where does my danger come? Where, where, where is the hostility? Who am I in danger from? You're in danger from heaven. You're in danger from heaven. Who in heaven, a person says, who in heaven could want to do me harm? Who in heaven could I be in danger from? And this is a surprising answer. 
people don't think about it too many times. But it's God. It's God who you are in danger from. John 3.36, John the Baptist said, He that hath the Son hath life, but he that hath not the Son of God, the wrath of God abides on him. God's wrath is coming. You may say, well, why is his wrath stored up against me? Why am I in danger from God's wrath? Why would God be mad at little old me? In Psalms chapter 9, verses 15 to 17, the psalmist says that God's anger is stored up every day because we are wicked. We sin against him. We've defied him. Remember in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, they transgressed God's holy law. They transgressed God's holy law. They did not obey the Lord. They doubted God. And they died. Read the Old Testament. You'll see God's wrath coming upon the sinners, upon the wicked. The wicked. You may say, am I really a wicked person? I mean, I'm not the best person. I'm not, I'm not as good as you know, Bob or Mary or so-and-so, am I really wicked? Well, the answer to that question is, yes, you are. You're wicked. You're worse than you think you are. Now, there is a test for wickedness. It's in the Bible. And like the COVID test, you can get a rapid test. <laughs> it's not going to take 14 days to get your results. You're going to know right away if you're wicked. It's in Revelation chapter 21, verse number 8. There's a list given of the sort of people who are wicked enough to be cast into hell. Now, the Bible gives this list more than once in Scripture. You'll find lists like this in the Old Testament, several times in the New Testament, and here in the last book of the Bible, a list of the people, the kind of people who will be cast into hell. Revelation 21, verse 8. There's eight things here. I'll give them to you. The Bible says that the fearful will be cast into hell. This is an interesting thing, the fearful. Some translations translate it as cowardly. These are the persons who will not do their duty, who will not do right. They, they seek out their own good above all other things. Their, their, their real concern is themselves and no others. Fearful. And then you have the unbelieving, those persons who are faithless, they have not put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. The third is a word that's interesting. It's abominable. Newer translations put it like this, that they are detestable people. Detestable. An abominable sin or a detestable sin. These are the kind of really awful sins that are out there in the world. Awful sins. Did you see this week over there in, in the United Kingdom? They arrest. They had been looking for this girl named Sarah. I can't remember her last name. I want to say it's Sarah. I want to say it's Ever something. But they've been looking for her, and they finally found, they found her body in a park over there in the United Kingdom in London. She'd been killed. And they arrested somebody for killing her. And, they arrested, and it turns out it was a policeman that they've arrested. A policeman. All you got to do is watch the headlines, and you, you hear about all kinds of horrible things that people do. Detestable things. The kind of things that would make a bank robbing murderer want to do harm. There, there's the kind of sins that exist in this world are really incredible. Incredible. 
some wicked sins in this world, detestable sins. And then the fourth category, you have murderers. Murderers. The fifth is whoremongers. It's an old word. We don't use it too much. But it refers to the sexually immoral. Let me say this while I'm here because you have to keep, you have to keep constant fight. You have to keep a, a constant. You have to keep talking about this a lot. Sex with the person you're married to is fine. Sex with your spouse is good. Nothing wrong with it. Sex with somebody you're not married to is a sin. It's a sin. Now, nobody at your school thinks that. Nobody at your work thinks that. I say nobody. Very few people. But it's a sin. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against yourself. Sex with the person you're married to is fine. Sex with someone you're not married to is a sin. Don't do it. That's the sexually immoral. The whoremonger. Number six is sorcerers. Sorcerers. Now, we think about sorcerers, someone who practices the occult. That's probably true. The Greek word here might take us a little bit deeper. It's from a, it's the Greek word is pharmakos, which means it talks about drugs. I've written here, dope, question mark. People full with dope. Dope and the occult tend to go together. Seven, idolaters, that's false religion. We read about it in Isaiah. People are worshiping things they made themselves. False religion, false gods. And then eighth, liars, liars, telling lies. All of these things, these are the kind of things that God says are worthy of the lake of fire, which is the second death. And I guarantee that this list hit everybody at least once, and if not once, probably twice. Maybe for some of us, several times. But a person may be sitting here in this room and say, you know, I heard the list, but I've never done any of those things. I've never done any of those things. Well, friends, it could be true. It could be true. I hate to call somebody a liar. <laughs> so I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. It could be true. But friends, we're not only held accountable by God for our deeds. We're held accountable by God for our thoughts. For our thoughts. Our thoughts. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's like you committed adultery already. If you hate someone, then you have murder in your heart already towards them. Not just deeds, but thoughts. In Hebrews, it says that the God that we're dealing with is a God who before him all things are naked. He knows everything. When you're in the shower, when you're at school, when you're fishing, when you're at play, when you're at work, you are completely exposed to God's omniscience all the time. He knows everything about you. You don't know everything about me. I don't know everything about you. But God knows it all. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Jesus tells us, that the thought of sin 
is sin. Just as much as a sinful action is sin. This is the teaching of Jesus. And this was not something that he just brought up for the first time. In Proverbs 24, verse number 9, it says that the thought of foolishness is sin. One, tra- one translation says, the scheming of folly is sin. Thinking about doing the sin. When I was a kid, I would sit in church just like you guys are sitting in church, and I didn't really care for going to church when I was a kid. Probably like some of y'all. <laughs> and I'd sit there, and my grandpa lived in a little town called Humboldt. And there was the Humboldt Bank. A little town, 500 people, little bank. And uh, I used to think about what it would be like to rob that bank. Because I wanted, to buy, I wanted to buy some stuff, right? I wanted a four-wheeler. I wanted a fishing boat and a new rifle. I mean, yeah, robbing the bank. People think about doing things they shouldn't do. People think about these things. And just the thought of that is sin. But just thinking about it. You didn't do it. You just thought about it. God says that's a sin. You see, friends, we're going to be held accountable by God for our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. I think it's Matthew 12, 10, where it says that every idle word will be called into account in the day of judgment. The God with whom we deal, before Him all things are naked. He knows all these things. In Acts chapter 8, verse 22, there's a man that the Apostle Peter is dealing with. And just to reinforce this idea of needing to repent of even thoughts. Peter tells a man in Acts 8.22, he tells him to repent and maybe God will forgive, and here's a quotation, the thought of thine heart. The thought of thine heart. Paul says in Corinthians that we as Christians, we should be striving to bring into captivity even our thoughts, even our minds. So the problem is not just deeds. The problem is that we are born with corrupt natures and we cannot of our own selves get right with God. We're we're corrupt. We're defiled from the inside to the outside. We need a savior. We need someone to come and deliver us. We're so corrupt that even our good deeds are tainted. Even our good deeds are tainted. So what can Jesus do about it? What can Jesus do? Jesus is the Savior. And He didn't come to save the best of the lot. He has come for sinners. Jesus said to the Pharisees who thought they were very religious, He said, I am not come to call the righteous. They they, They that are well have no need of a physician. Who has he come for? He's come for those who are sick in their sins. Those who are dying. Those who are perishing. Those who are corrupted. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins. This is who Jesus has come for. What can Jesus do for us? Well, first of all, Jesus is the one who takes our punishment. In Galatians 3.13, it says that he was made a curse for us. And in the top of my Bible there, Galatians, I have written A.T. Robertson's suggested translation of that phrase. A.T. Robertson says it could be translated, being made a curse over us. Over us. 
Jesus becoming accursed for us. You see, we are guilty of our sins. We have committed actual sins against God for which we're going to be held accountable. But Jesus came and was cursed in our place. Robertson says the Greek word there can refer to being stretched over us. When we use the word for, being made a curse for us, being made a curse because of us, Robertson says it means Jesus laying over us. Remember a few years ago down in Alabama, there was a big tornado. And a, there was a guy who had about, I don't know, he had 10 or, 10 or 15 kids, and they were all in the house together. And the tornado came and pulled the house off of them. But he had laid his body over them to try to protect them and keep them safe, and the tornado pulled him away. That's the image, being made a curse over us. Jesus cursed in our place. Jesus took the punishment that you deserve for your sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he was made sin for us who knew no sin. He was the object of God's wrath. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, it says that Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him because Jesus has taken their wrath. That's what Jesus can do. Jesus can bear the wrath of God and survive and come out and be a savior, but you can't. You can't survive the wrath of God. Jesus came and took our punishment. Secondly, Jesus came and he removed the burden of absolute obedience from us. He came and removed the burden of absolute obedience. Remember a a man in the the New Testament came to Jesus and said, what do I got to do to get everlasting life? And what did Jesus say? Did he say, believe on me and you shall be saved? Is that what he said? (laughs) No. He said, you know the law. Keep the commandments. And the guy says, I've been doing all that stuff. And Jesus says, well, maybe not. He says, sell all you have and follow me. And the guy goes away sorrow. He says, great possession. He doesn't want to do it. Leviticus, it's 18.5. God says, here's the law. Do it and you shall live. But the problem is you can't do it. You cannot keep the law. That's why Jesus has come. That's why the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to a Savior. Because we cannot keep the law of God. If you're following the Bible reading schedule we give out from time to time, you're reading right now about Moses up on the mountain getting the law of God. The people have already said, we'll do whatever God says. Moses on the mountain getting the law of God. And while Moses is up there for 40 days, guess what's happening? Meanwhile, back at the ranch. You know what's happening down there? They're sinning and breaking the law. (laughs) And then an interesting thing. While they're down there sinning and breaking the law, what, what is God giving to Moses while they're breaking the law? He's giving them the sacrificial system. He's telling Moses, this is how the sins of the people, this is how the wrath can be taken away. It's Romans 5, 8 in living color. While we were yet sinners... Christ dying for us. You see, Jesus has come and taken away the burden of absolute obedience. 
The law of God says that if you are to be saved by obedience to your works, that you must keep the law without ever breaking it. That's Galatians 3.12. Your relationship with God does not depend upon your perfect obedience because you're never going to be perfectly obedient. Jesus has come to be the Savior and to secure you from all danger forever. When I was talking about evil thoughts a minute ago, I think probably most people here are Christians. How's your thought life, Christian? (laughs) We know it ain't that great. We can't even help what we're thinking sometimes. Just leaps in there. No one can do it. No one can can do that. Provide absolute obedience. So Christ came. Christ came and he obeyed the law completely. And the only holy, sinless man who's ever walked upon the face of the earth, who never sinned against God in thought, word, or deed, was Jesus. He came and the Father laid on him our guilt. And he died for our sins so we might be set free. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. Galatians 2, 16 to 21. Knowing that a man is not justified, that's the same as saying saved, by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, And not by works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No one's going to be saved by works, only by the law. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of you folks sitting right here in this room actually think you're going to be saved by works. You know why that is? Because it seems like the way it has to be. It seems like the right thing. If you're going to have the things you want in life, what do you have to do to get them? Play the lottery, right? (laughs) No, you're going to have to work. It's going to take a lot of effort to get what you want. A lot of self-denial. A lot of thinking and planning. And it seems normal to us to say, of course getting to heaven is going to require a lot of work on our behalf. It makes sense to us. And Satan comes and he says, yes, you've got to work. False religion comes and says, you've got to work. But true religion in Jesus, the Savior, comes and says, I've done all the work. Trust in me. Only I can save. Jesus can give everlasting righteousness and eternal life to all who believe. That's that great passage in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It comes from God through Jesus. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can do it. Now this word Savior appears throughout the scripture. It's about 37 times the word scripture appears. 37 or 36. In the Old Testament, it's interesting that the Hebrew word that's translated Savior actually appears 207 additional times. 
And every time it appears, it's save, preserve, deliver, make safe, secure, over and over, the whole idea. And then that's how God chooses to identify himself as the Savior. And then Jesus comes into the world. And he's called the Savior. Now, if you have your copy of God's word, turn to Titus. We're going to end with this reading from Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. That's towards the back of the Bible, just before Hebrews. Titus chapter 3. Only Jesus can save. And listen to what Paul says to Titus. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust. That means various Divers means various. Lust and pleasures. Living in malice. Now, malice is the desire to do someone else harm. Malice. And envy. Hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus is the Savior. It doesn't come to us by works of righteousness, but it's by God's mercy. My friends, listen to me. It is a mercy of God that you are here in this room hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ's free and sovereign grace being preached to you. It's God's mercy because you could be sitting in a Muslim uh, uh, mosque hearing a cleric declare to you that you've got to have a big pile of good if you're going to get into heaven. It's, God, it's just God's mercy that you're not in a Buddhist temple sitting around being real quiet, trying to reach inner peace. It's God's mercy and grace that you're not sitting in some pseudo-Christian church where they're not preaching the true gospel of grace and salvation through Christ. It's just God's mercy. But here you are, hearing the glad tidings of heaven once again. Jesus is the Savior. Only Jesus can save. Now, this word Savior appears the most times in the New Testament in the book of Titus. It's in chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 13. In chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. Six times, Paul says to Titus, God, Jesus is the one who saves. So I asked myself this question. I said, why, why so often in Titus? Why so often in Titus? I think it's because of chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Listen to how Paul describes the people who live where Titus lives. Listen to the reading. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own. He said, this is, this is what the, the people from this area say about themselves. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, <laughs> slow bellies. 
And Paul says, this witness is true. (laughs) Who can save people like that? Jesus. Jesus. Who can save people like you and me? Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's close with that reading again from Isaiah 45. And we'll be finished. Isaiah 45, 21 to 23. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. So look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Only Jesus can save you. Do not look to your family. Don't look to religious actions or deeds. Don't look to baptismal waters. Don't look to the Lord's Supper. Don't look to your Bible reading. Don't look to any other religious activities. Don't look to the fact that you're pretty good at not doing the things you used to do. Look to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would...